I would like to reach out to my white counterparts today and would like to say this is not in any way me to bash or make anyone feel bad. This is only highlighting the racist policies that have been put in place by our government and by forefathers. Now, with that being said, the topic I'm going to be discussing today is institutional racism. And you may ask yourself, what is institutional racism? Well, institutional racism is distinguished from racial bigotry by the existence of institutional systematic policies, practices, economic and political structures with places minorities racial, racially, and economic groups at a disadvantage in relation to an institutional racial or ethnic majority. So, what that mean in layman terms? The race majority put systems in place to make sure that the race minorities stay at the bottom. So, let's take a look at the media, for instance. Um, there are not many media decks that are a minority, particularly African American. You look at the TV channels, I think I say after, for African Americans, you maybe have two, and that's like BET and Bounce. Um, and you have the Open Rent Free Network, so that probably makes it three. Um, you look at um, today's American government. It's majority white. We do have we do have a black caucus within within our Congress, but I don't. For me, for personal belief, I do not think that their voices are heard enough. And it's kind of a lot of the issues that they bring up. They tend to brush aside in Congress, seeing because it doesn't affect them. Um, with that, all that being said, I do believe America is built on racism. It has always have been. It has always been built like that. So, one of the policies I'm going to be talking about today is redlining and how dangerous it is because it is causing a lot of the issues that we have today, especially like the racial gap that has not changed since the 1970s. So, what is redlining? Redlining is a refusal of a loan or insurance to someone because they live in an area deemed to be a poor financial risk or based on race. So, how would the government do this? How would they get white people and black people separate? So, in the 1930s, government surveyors graded in the neighborhoods in 239 cities, color coding them green for best, blue for still desirable, yellow for definitely declining, and red for hazardous. So with that being said, a lot of these cities and neighborhoods that was, you know, divvied up, a lot of the red areas, were my red or yellow areas, was minorities' neighborhoods. For instance, in Kansas City alone, in the 2010 census, it brought up a shocking fact. So in Kansas City... You basically have all the minorities in the inner city, so the African Americans, um, Arabs, Mexicans, anybody that's diverse is in the inner city, and white people in the suburbs. And truth is not mixing this in line. So you go to the north of truth, it looks nice. The south, it's pretty rough, especially crime-wise. So... So why is redlining so bad? It affects schooling. It affects how people build wealth. It affects 
how me as a um, African American can try to get ahead in society. So, the one way that it's fiscally is how much the school gets. So, I went to an inner city public school in Kansas City. Roughly, the Kansas City Public School District gives us about eight thousand per kid in school. When you go to like suburban areas like Lee Summit, Belton, they really usually get twelve to fifteen thousand. That means better technology, better schooling, better teachers, better facilities than what we have in the inner city. So, when I'm in school or people that look like me in school, we already at a disadvantage. We already already forty forty yards not ahead but behind of our white counterparts that are in the suburbs. A lot of the still suburban areas are still white. Like Levittown is one percent, one percent minority. So fast forward to the day. Nationally nearly two thirds of the neighborhoods deemed hazardous are inhabited by minority residents, typically black and Latino. Showed in two thousand eighteen that three out of four neighborhoods redlined on government maps and 80 years ago continue to struggle economically today. Because you look at places like the suburbs, they have all the malls, better paying jobs, nicer houses, which are able to you to build wealth and pass it down because wealth is a generational thing. Being rich is just being rich. It's two different completely things. So, for minorities like myself, it's harder to build that wealth because the obstacles in place, especially with redlining. A study showed in, about well, two years ago, I believe, it showed that Wells Fargo, who actually got caught redlining, was giving higher interest rates to minorities, particularly African Americans, higher interest rates even though they had a higher or the same credit score as their white counterparts. Tell me is that right in any sense? And going back to the schooling, it's causing a lot of segregation. I don't ruin everything detailed it a lot better than I can and it brings up how we are more segregated today in our schools any other time in history. That means including the the era of Jim Crow laws. And just to wrap this segment up, it also causing another problem right now, and it's called gentrification. So to put gentrification in simpler terms, it's the process of removing and improving a house or district so it conforms to a middle class taste. However, what is actually happening right now is not happening like that. It's white land developers coming into the inner city, buying up houses in black neighborhoods or land, and putting out the low-income low owners or renters in that area to bring more people in that have more money. Washington, D.C., Baltimore, and I believe New Orleans is going through this, especially Washington, D.C. They've been in recent news with because with Howard University and and the go-go store. So what happened with those two incidents with Howard, so what's happening with Watch, um, Howard University is you having white residents that lives around 
the campus, bringing their dogs, kids to the front yard where the students be. And the students have been complaining. Well, well, in one new segment, you had a white man basically brought up the idea to move a 150-year university just so they can use the park to bring their dogs on. And that's the problem I have with gentrification. You have white people moving back in the inner city trying to change the culture of that neighborhood or that district simply because they want a suburban feel. If you want to stay in the suburbs, stay out there. Don't try to bring the suburban culture down where we are as minorities. We have our own cultures. We have things that we like to do, right? In my neighborhood back home in Kansas City, you have a store down the street. They play music loud all the time. They usually stop blasting around like 9 p.m. You know, just be in accordance with the noise ordinance that goes on in our neighborhood. So, and south side, southeast side of Kansas City has been dealing with gentrification. You see a lot more white people in the neighborhoods. At the same time, it's causing issues because we are, you know, the cops are being called on us for simple things like maybe playing our loop music a little too loud or because they don't like that we do simple stuff like barbecue or we trying to fix a flat tire in front of their house. That's a story for another day. But back to gentrification, why can't these white land developers or whoever developing these areas, why can't you find a way to make sure that you bring in people that is not causing issues or not wanting to change the culture or even put their own spin to it? I say for as an African American, when we move out to different places, we try to put our own spin on anything out there. It is what it is. I think African Americans today, we pushes the culture so much. And it's just like Barack Obama said, American culture is black culture. Also, I would like to bring up Brooklyn because they also are going through a cultural change. More white people are in, Bro- in Brooklyn more than ever. Hell, they even got a Whole Foods now. And you had people complaining about the prices of food. Who want to pay $4 for a sweet potato? Are you kidding me? $4 for a sweet potato? So that means a lot of the residents have to go farther out to go get food at a cheaper rate because they want to put a Whole Foods there that people can't simply a lot of time can't afford. It's bad enough America as a whole, minorities, we get paid less than our white counterparts. And half the country is making, barely making $33,000 a year. It is what it is. So with gentrification, I think it can work. But not to the point where you're pushing out residents. Why push out the residents that makes their neighborhood what it is today? Why is that? Why make people go farther out for food? Simply because you're trying to make a, enough money to make that store open. That's because Whole Foods was failing. That's why Jeff Bezos, he's bought it. Because it was a failing entity because simply the prices of food. For the solutions that they already have going on, it's it's not working very well. Especially like places like Seattle where 
the racial gap is so huge, it's it rents so enhanceable, it's it's sad that it's like that. You know, you got places like Baltimore where the average black American wealth is a dollar compared to hundred and ten for white. Excuse me, not Baltimore, but it's Boston where it's a dollar. Um compared to the white Boston's residence, which is $110,000 for wealth. And that's sad. And I think the government should do more about this to make sure that everybody has reasonable housing to live in at a reasonable price. But that also, we got to also talk about paying everybody a living wage, make sure everybody has enough money to pay the bills, and have some left in the pocket to buy food, you know, cover expenses and stuff like that. But that's a discussion for another day. We're talking about institutional racism. So, another system I want to talk about is the prison system. Particularly with drugs. Yeah, particularly with drugs. So, everybody knows the war on drugs is a horrible failure. Started out in the 1970s. And they had burnt over a trillion dollars, putting over two million people in jail on drug offenses. You know, I was watching a uh, a last night, last last week, last night with uh, John Oliver, and he was talking about you know when Obama was commuting sentences and how you had people in there. Serving just for having three ounces of methamphetamine, serving a life sentence. Three ounces that means they get more time than rapists, they get more time for murderers just for having three ounces of methamphetamine. And I'm not saying that meth should be legal, but getting life for what's the name? Just getting life for having three ounces of methamphetamine? I think that's sad. And I think the station should do something about it when it comes to, like, crack and cocaine. I always said crack is a black person drug, cocaine is a white person drug. So with crack and cocaine, okay, my uncle in California got caught with 58 grams of crack. They charged him 58 grams of crack equates to about a kilo worth of cocaine, which carries around... A 10-year sentence. But however, it's crack. They crack down harder on it. So, for every 10 years of... So, every... I say every gram. For every gram of uh, cocaine, you usually get about 10 years for every gram you have a crack. So, we had 58 grams. So, basically, he was serving a life sentence in jail in a federal prison in California. He was one of the few people that... President Obama did release because prior to that he had no record. He hasn't. My uncle who's out now he's like, I have a prior record. And with that being said, you have and now you got to take a look at weed and how it's kind of, I kind of find it funny that America is now profiting off of weed in two different ways. You have the weed industry now, which is probably most likely a 
I say over $500 billion business, and then you still putting people in jail for weed, particularly African Americans due to the heavy policing in our areas. So, we are four, so, so with African Americans, you are four to six times more likely to get arrested for a drug offense than your white counterpart. White people and black people do the same amount of drugs at the same amount of rate. But guess what? Who get arrested more? African Americans or if you're a Latino? To me, that's highly wrong. Why is it like that? Is it because the prison systems, they need quotas to keep getting the funding that they get from the state? Or is it because simply private prisons are just basically slave camps? Where the only the 14th Amendment, excuse me, not the 14th, the 13th Amendment is not applied. So, back to the war on drugs. Who started it? Well, you got to look at Mr. I think, I believe, is Richard Nixon himself. Okay. Nixon started it. But Reagan ramped it up. By floating crack in the African American neighborhoods. It's not a secret. You have plenty of A's who have came out and said, yeah, our administration made sure that we floated crack in the neighborhoods of African Americans to put more of them in jail. And then you got the crime bill signed by Bill Clinton, which put more African Americans in jail than the slaves that were brought over here to work for white people in the first place. You take it, you take a look at, um, the prison population, they most most of them today, a lot of them, maybe I say some two thirds, are African Americans or minorities. One in three black males have been or have been in prison because nobody want to talk about why why this person is selling drugs. You look at Demarius Thomas, an NFL football player. Also, his mother and grandmother had to be, had they sent us commutated because of the harsh drug laws that were placed in where they lived at. And the sisters that they got, they both got life, if if I'm not mistaken. Life in prison was selling crack, but they don't want to talk about why. Why is that? We got to look at... African-American women, African-American women make 65 cents on a dollar. Compared to white women, it's about 75. To Hispanics, it's about 68. I believe that as a country, we should get rid of mandatory minimums. Simply because we, it costs, we're spending more on prisons than school now. Which is, I finally, highly ironic. Um, and the cutting of our education system is horrible all the time. But to spend more on somebody in prison than to let somebody out or give them a smaller sentence because they're a nonviolent drug offender, I think that's reasonable. No way that somebody in today's time, a nonviolent drug offender, whether they did the drug or not, whether they were selling, should get more time than a rapist. I've seen this story today. White male committed rape on a 12-year-old girl. Two years probation. Two years. 
two years probation, and you have African Americans sent in jail just for simple weed offenses, serving years, decades, and that's wrong. And we need to fix that. We need to make sure that we get the crazy people in, and the reasonable people that can be here rehabilitated out. And when they get out, help them to integrate back in society. Help them to make sure they don't fall back in that same cycle. Again, to where they back in prison or feel like they need to go back in prison because they get three, they get a meal, they get three meals in a cot. Now, with that being said, look at the wheat industry today. Majority, I think, research finds that almost ninety-five percent of the people that's selling weed are white people, and you got. Low-level drug dealers can probably do the same thing at a better, better pace or a better rate. You telling me that you can't let all these African Americans that got weed offenses go in whatever state they're in, wherever it's legal, put them in a program to teach them business, and then help them gain a spot to where they can sell said product of weed. We should be able to do that. We're America. We are supposed to be the greatest places on earth. Ain't no way that white people only, just only white people are able to benefit off of weed. It's not, it's, it's not plausible. It doesn't make any sense. And it shouldn't make any sense to anybody. So with that being said, we're going to shift to jobs. Okay. Recent ruling just came out a couple months ago that it's legal for jobs to now not hire people with dreads. Now, I know that you got to look presentable at your job. And I think all African Americans, particularly one who have dreads, understand this. So, why is it should be a standard for dreads for dreads not to be in the workplace? As long as you keep them up, they're well, they're not too long, and you're not, and they're not overly like colorful. What? Why is it a problem? It shouldn't be a problem. It's a hairstyle that African Americans have been wearing for years, centuries, and it's a problem in the workplace. It's a problem for you to get a job. You mean to tell me that hair? I've been growing up since I was wee young. I have to now cut to get to get a job to look professional. I can look professional with or without the dreads. And as far as hairstyles being a part consideration of the job, I don't think it should be. That's just another way to make sure that African Americans and minorities don't get high level jobs. And that is a problem. Another thing with the names. Doesn't matter if your name is Bonquiqui, okay? If Bonquiqui can do the job, Bonquiqui should be able to get the job. You see, better than her counterparts, who are all other white, she should be able to get that job. You shouldn't, these companies should not be allowed to give a job to a person just because they are white, they have a white sounding name, they sound professional, they look the part. It shouldn't be like that. If you can do the job, you should be able to get 
the job. And minorities, particularly African Americans and Latinos, have been doing this for years. And with the pronunciation of names, I have seen white people pronounce some crazy ass names that I have yet to still learn how to pronounce. I just recently learned how to say Galifianakis. Okay, the guy from Hangover. That's his name. I just finally learned how to pronounce his last name. And he has a well-paying job in acting. But you can't say like, but you can't say, but white people can't seem to say names like Lupita Nyong'o or Chadwick Boseman. Yes, I've seen white people struggle with Chadwick Boseman for some reason. I don't know why. But those type of names, should it be affecting why get a job? There's actually been a study done of a resume. They put a, put a white name on it. Got jobs. It was hidden with jobs. They put a black name on it. Silence. Very few job offers. So, you telling me you looking over a black person's resume on purpose. And I get it, we have affirmative action, but let's face it, affirmative action has majority helped white women in the workforce. Look at the research. It's not that hard to find. So, with that being said, I hope that you enjoyed this podcast, even though it was horribly done. Um, not very good talking on the mic. So, hope you learned something. If you want to state opinions in class, I hope we can. Hope we can come to a conclusion in America where we need to fix some of these issues. Like redlining, stopping these banks from giving higher interest rates to black people and minorities. So, they be to able to build wealth and to get out of poverty. Um, fix our school system. Be able to fix the drug laws, especially the drug laws. The drug laws, if I'm not, it's, no, it's probably, if it goes redlining number one, it's detrimental to minorities. it got to be number two. It's the drug laws. we got to fix them. And as far as jobs, it's a simple solution. Just stop making hairstyles and names be a part of the job application. Because... If you have the knowledge, the power to do the job, you should be able to get the job. And with that thing being said, I thank you for listening and good night.